imagine if you had, if you were in control of like 40 million people and you took 20 million people, put uh, them to this side, 20 million people, put them to so this, you're just fucking to this side, just put a, a little, yeah, strip them of everything that they know and then put some awareness in just 10 out of 200. Yeah. And then every generation it gets a little bit bigger, but it never gets big enough to catch up with oh, the you don't ignorance think? and the disconnected people who just keep growing. You don't think it ever will surpass that? No, I don't. I do. Think of all of humanity as having this like urge. We don't know where it's coming from, but we have this desire to like push the mm-hmm. light on in people. Yeah. And the more we do it, the more of us we become because it's something that multiplies. So it's like when I give it to somebody, they now have it. They can do something so small and then all these other people have it and it's going crazy. It's like exponential. And now just zoom out and remember, we're on planet fucking Earth. It's insane when you think about how small we are. So when you pull out to that level and like zoom out up to the cosmos and look at us, then what you're seeing is that same idea of mutation and evolution because what you're seeing is like chaos. After this, we'll evolve into something else. It's not, we're not gonna be this way anymore. This is phasing out. You're listening to Forces and Lovers, a podcast for those thirsty for meaningful conversation in a time of political and social insanity. We don't have answers, we have an impulse to share ourselves and to find you, the dreamers, seekers, and radical thinkers of the world who believe in the force that connects us all. Love. Yeah, love is a revolutionary force. Sure. Loving your enemy? No. I think that that line of thinking, that somehow you can outlove someone's oppression of you can be a means and that that can be a means to liberation is a very effectively perpetuated myth that the oppressor has used to keep people down if revolutionaries did not love themselves and strongly love others they wouldn't be able to sacrifice their lives for something greater but we've had to turn away from the violence of revolution because the world today is overwhelmingly brutal, so out of control, that it's almost insane to think we can fight it, tangibly, violently. We haven't any choice but to confront it with our most poetic known and unknown selves. here in our bedroom so one of the first things we ever gave to me when we first started dating was this t-shirt he had made custom for me with an a picture of this woman Leila Khaled who is a Palestinian revolutionary holding a gun yeah she's most famous successfully hijacking a plane right Right. yeah that's what she did she did it armed she did it with a weapon and what did she do it for 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 a country, for love of country, for drawing attention to her nation's plight, and what did she have that hijacked plane do? Did she have it crash into a building and kill everyone aboard or something like that? No, she had it fly over the homeland that she was legally forbidden from visiting or seeing so she could lay eyes on Palestine. Like, I don't even have to look that far. I can look at my own community and our revolution 
people have been resisting colonial occupation by European forces for 70 years. Why do we do it? Because we hate them? Come on, we know better than that. We know why we do it. We do it because we love our country. We do it because we love each other. We do it because we love our heritage, our history, and the notion that one person should have one vote and that we should all have fundamentally you know, equal rights. I'm not investing love in Trump or my oppressor. Yeah, I'm, yeah, mis- I'm investing yeah. love in my community and my friends. Love for our families and communities brought us back to Los Angeles. The compulsion to return was both a desire to plant roots, to build something, as well as this need to give to the respective communities we come from. If you do indeed come from a community that is under siege and, 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 and oppressed, and if you've made it out, do you have a responsibility to share your intelligence and your gift or whatever it is you have that propelled you out of there? Do you have a responsibility to come back? No, I think, I think an individual has a responsibility to um, bring up the lowest of whatever community they're in at any given moment, right? So I'm close. I'm not close enough, either financially or physically, to help the community that I grew up in, like Inglewood and, and South LA. I think, I think, you're, I don't think you're, you owe anyone anything. I think you were the one that told me that. Jonathan, like, no, you don't owe anyone jack shit. You know, <laughs> and and you're right, and and but. Nothing we do, I think, comes out of guilt or owing. I think it goes back to that concept of love. And and I think somewhere along the way, we've learned that love is important to everyone that we come across. Yes, there is a force. There is a voice. uh, There is something that, that pushes me. But both Luis and I, we're... Our passion is not applied in a direct way to somehow contradicting the community we came from. What we're doing is use the privilege we have as the younger generation to amplify the voices of, ideally amplify the voices of the older generations, and perhaps less ideally, but still consistently, what Luis and I both do is work for the communities that we came from. Like, that's, that's what our intention is. I've always seen it as, like, spirit possession. Like, uh, what drove me to be aware of the history here and, and, and connected to the art and the person and the political was, uh, it, like, wasn't my choice. Toni Morrison once wrote, Nobody is obliged to save you. I veer back and forth between such a visceral sentiment. Who is anyone to save anyone? How can you be sure your terms are what is right for those you wish to help? What are your reasons to give back to the community? Are they selfless? Are they a deflection? Will it come at a price? Will your social responsibility come at a price? A lot of people will never care, and a lot of people um, are too selfish even to care. Some of us do care. So the question is, how do those of us who do care, 
How do we change anything? How do we help? And if the people who we want to help don't want to be helped, how do we then come to some sort of peace within ourselves? Sometimes destructive thoughts flood our minds. Who am I to help anyone? What can I contribute? Am I a fraud? The desire to make a difference is not synonymous with having any answers. It means we are merely channeling an energy that is available for anyone to tap into. When we realize this, those same thoughts of doubt evaporate. If you're of that mindset to give back, you will as much as you can. And what that is, um, I, I don't want to say there's a standard because everyone is going through something different. Everyone has different amounts that they can give. Everything is a contribution and everything matters and everything, uh, we don't know exactly you know, how much it's going to take, but we know that nothing is, um, nothing is insignificant when it comes to even a conversation or like a piece of art or a story or a movie or whatever, like it all adds to something. Mm -hmm. So it's all just additive. It's all doing the thing, you know? Mm. So, but for us, it's more of the stories, the work, the art, like what message are we trying to get across? What kind of, um, empathy can we build in people where they'll realize it for themselves like what right. kind of like soul churning you know thing can we get across that will um make them actually feel different yeah, yeah i was a stage actor for a while yeah yeah and then we was like trying try to start our own political the uh, theater company and we were yeah. so sick of the the just the way Broadway and off-off-Broadway functions and the things that they write for people of color is just, it's nonsense, you know? It's just like yeah. violent Latino guy or yeah. a gay Palestinian or, you yeah. know, like... Yeah. yeah. But it was all being written by white guys from Ivy League schools who knew nothing about yeah. homosexuality in Palestine or anything about Palestine. And... Um, yeah, but it was just hard to do. It was to like take on. And also, it was different. It was years ago, and it wasn't um, like I don't know the con like the national dialogue, the consciousness wasn't there yet. Like it was just like a lot of people when you spoke about um, anything about like white privilege or about whatever, like people weren't com mm -hmm. like they weren't yeah. comfortable yet. Yeah, it was very hard. like it was still very like whoa. Oh, and now it's becoming more like you know like yeah, people are. Yeah. Totally. Um, right. Which people measure that as a, as a thing of progress. Which I, I think I, it is. I don't at all. That it's being talked about? I don't think it's progress at all. No. What would progress it's look like? Pre-progress or what? Pre-progress. That's, I kind of like Pre-progress is still progress. <laughs> yeah, you get it. it's pre. It's pre. By 1979, the United States had through federally sanctioned violence, legal intimidation, and outright murder, wiped out a number of radical organizations. The Black Panthers, the Brown Berets, the Young Lords, the Red Guard Party, the Young Patriots Organization, and the American Indian Movement, most of whom had openly fought, defied, and demanded sovereignty 
from a government that still believes a majority of its non-white population is beneath them. It's hard to find good leaders because you got to find good leaders with the best intention of the people. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's really hard because along the way, like, these people get corrupted and get co-opted or used. And like, I do think that, like, the outside forces that drive people to, like, be scared and paranoid, like, you know, like, the, the, the enemy's attacks are also driving to push to be, you know, out of touch at some point. I don't know if you guys know this uh, guy, Stokely Tom, uh, Tom Michael. He said that the civil rights laws that were passed were passed for the benefit of white people. Because black people knew that it was wrong that they couldn't drink from the same fountain. Like, it was white people who who didn't know that. So the laws were passed for their benefit. Mm -hmm. Because, you know... Um, Someone telling them that it's wrong. Exactly. Exactly. And that's really kind of tragic when you look at it that way. But you know, isn't that, that better six... than not having it happen at all, progress-wise? So, like, even if it's late. Think oh. about <laughs> disciplining a child, right? So think about, like, if you're telling a child um, that something is right or wrong, the hope <coughs> is that you actually instill in the child uh, something deeper than just right. being afraid to act because I'll get reprimanded. Right. And that's the level that it stays at in this country with, yeah. usually, with yeah. racism. Usually yeah. it stays there. Usually it's like, oh, I won't be outrightly racist because then I'll be told I'm a bad person. But if right. I just keep all of my racism in, and if I you know, make decisions, but don't say that it's because this person's black, but say because it's because he was wearing a hooded sweater, yeah, yeah. then yeah. it's okay. We've all been at different stages of problematicness. Yeah. And you know, I've only grown because I've had awesome black and brown um, and women and queer uh, uh, folks mm-hmm. um, guide me to this point. I didn't learn this shit in school. No one, unless you major it in nowadays, can, which is what sucks. And so much of, I feel, Facebook commenting is just educating other people. Um, and I only do it because that's how I learn. My only real issue is more with not so much these large social movements, but kind of the one-on-one or small group dynamics that people have, kind of just everyday kind of interactions with people. The kind yeah. of, again, the, the self-policing. A lot of people are fucking going out of the way. Again, it, it, it's very, to me, it's very gross. It's like, they're really trying to sell you on how good of a person they are. I mean, yeah. I'm so, 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 so not racist. Give me, give me a bigoted hillbilly. Yeah. To have this, at least he can express his views unfiltered. I know where he stands. It doesn't matter what your background is, I think you can speak and contribute to anything. I just don't think you can ever speak for other people and that's the difference. And it's like, who the fuck gave you license to talk about the struggles as if you're, as if you've been invited, as if, as if you have yeah. any notion. And I know you don't have a notion be, because of the way in which you speak about these things. No, it's about something that John does a lot, and you what? know, like, that's his fucking... Yeah. I haven't said anything yet, hold on. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, you have, you have lit- it's literally, and metaphorically speaking, a black and white view about kind of the the essential nature of white people and black people. You tend to kind of overly be favorable black or people of color and overly what? Like, you, you, you give absolutely... You, you almost... It's almost... Here's why people might accuse of being uh, a reverse racist, because you're almost 
taking the humanity away from white people because they're like oppressive devils. I think I've always had a um, camaraderie with uh, black with my black friends, even though I've never. Mm. It's not something I carry with me physically. I, it's not obvious that I'm black, but yeah. um, I think that they know with. Oh. With energy and with language. He must be one of us. He yeah. must be one of us by what he's giving me. It is a privilege to walk on the racial ledge of a 10-story building. It is a privilege to have an officer think two or three times before shooting you. It is a privilege for people not to be able to figure out who you are, what you are, and what they desire you to be. As somebody who benefits from light skin privilege or benefits from not automatically being seen as Mexican in Los Angeles or Mexican in the United States, I can see how that is played out in my life compared to other people even in my own family. This is what we know as POC as children of immigrants. You go out into the world, acquire an education, and you come back and use the opportunities you had to do something useful. I'm an immigrant from Mexico. One thing that I wouldn't want to, like, you know, I wish we didn't have when we came here, you know, it's like having the, um, the trauma and like survivor guilt that we have. Like, yeah. mm -hmm. I think like, we don't, I, we don't understand like the, my parents didn't understand the historic concept of why they came here. They were just thankful the U.S. was better than, than what they, they were at. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, you know, a lot of our parents come here, and it's always been, like, the survival, like, instinct of, like, keeping your head down and just don't, look, you know, do your job. You know, you're expected to do this. It was kind of like a very, like, already, like, a low standard set. Like, you're expected to do this and decide to survive, but never, like, bring attention to yourself. Luis, uh, it's pretty remarkable that you grew up that way, and yet your job and a key part of your identity is tied up in being undocumented, unafraid, hella fucking vocal about fighting against an oppressive system. So DACA happened right at the zenith of our, like, sort of work. I, I don't want to call it, I guess, activist work, right? And we were rising for everyone. There's a good dreamer, and then there was us, like, the more radical, leftist, undocumented kids who were like, we're not just talking about dreamers, we're not getting into these identity politics, we're, we want immigrant rights for all people, we want immigrant rights for not just, you know, Latinos, there's also an undocumented Asian community, there's a huge black community. Not a lot of folks understand, like, you know, when we first did come out as undocumented, and we were expected to just be happy for whatever the, the, this establishment offer us. We were doing this at the time, and then DACA got announced two days into the hunger strike, mm -hmm. and then um, that just like made everyone who is undocumented who could qualify for DACA, they were able to get work permits and not not have to feel the burn of the struggle so much. Yeah. Part of the reason, you know, me, people like me, Lewis, we don't do it as much, is that we know that there's a wave of youth, uh, younger undocumented kids, who are, and it seems weird to be this, like, we're only 29, and to say, oh, we're like, we're not youth anymore, but every uh, foreign country's revolution that I can think of off the top of my head, always student-led, right. you know, uh, Bangladesh's liberation, um, you know, uh, student-led. 
I kind of always like think of youth. I'm like, well, they're the ones that I inherit everything. Like, you know, youth are not born prejudiced or racist. They this shit from their older folks. Yeah. So I kind of be like, how do I, I eliminate that teaching and for them to be compassionate and open-minded people? That was six years ago, seven years ago. And um, we're all just trying to get on with our lives, I guess. Giving back to the community sometimes means sacrificing your life. And I guess a lot of us felt like we, we did that a lot. And now it's time to get our lives in order. They call it assimilation. We call it genocide, said the great Santi Sioux, Mexican poet and activist, John Trudell. Our assimilation seems to be an irreplaceable part of us. It is so deeply ingrained within us. It is like a dozen fingers drenched in salt, reaching around inside your gaping wound, desperately searching for some final way to sever you from your ancestral spirit and folk ways, searching to sever you from an identity that, by its very existence, frightens the power structure of the United States. We have a culture that is literally ancient. It's literally like hundreds and hundreds of years of learning and memory and skill that we see through our grandmothers. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's so strong that has been carried on. And Mm -hmm. that's what's scary about like now when people talk about like, you know, now versus then. It's a little scary. I don't know if my generation as grandmothers will do as good of a job passing down that knowledge. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. If you're a, a person of color living in this country, it's harder to hold on to. And I think that those things are, um, it's just easier to sort of say, okay, I'm going to define my worth based on these norms, mm-hmm. which are, you know, the norms in our society, which are, oh, be successful, be educated, right. make a living, whatever. Right. And I'm not necessarily going to hold on to all of this knowledge, like even fucking cooking, making tamales from scratch. Yeah. I never learned how to do that. And but I... But your grandmother did. But my grandmother did. Yeah. And, I, and thinking about it in that way makes me regret not having learned. But mm-hmm. it also just wasn't a part of my experience. It wasn't a part of my culture. It didn't come naturally. Because we weren't in our original culture, we were taken out of it. So it already started to, you know. Yeah, it already started to disintegrate. The powers fucking Mm -hmm. already got to it. I'll use my own, you know, personal background as as an example. I'm Persian, blah, blah, blah. I grew up in a very white conservative area. I knew when people were talking about me, be it I was a fucking terrorist or be fucking, I'm just some fucking, you know, whatever. Yeah, you have a lot of that internalized shit too. (laughs) <laughs> I know that shit. I know that I can. I can feel the intentionality and the alienation that comes from it. I know they're othering me. Yes. And that sucks. And that totally sucks. And I, I'm with you 100%. A lot of times it's people that we love that we see who are victimized by these same things that we're trying to fight against. My mom fell victim to that whole idea of whitewashing and she was never proud of her identity as a Mexican woman. You know, she has no accent, she speaks great English, she bleaches her hair, she um, has only dated white men in her life. And the thing with these issues, these, you know, systemic racism is that it not only affects 
your external life it not only affects one's ability to get a job one's ability to live peacefully one's ability to get arrested or not um the the thing is this is such a sophisticated tool that it can creep into someone's psyche and it gets there and it infects them and it makes them hate themselves <sighs> seeing my mother and seeing people in my own family be ashamed of where they come from because they're they were made to feel ashamed that's that's when the anger started to rise i'm angry all of the time yeah like all of the fucking time i'm just angry i feel people all of the time judging other people without any true understanding of the experience of the person that they're judging and what that reality is like. Mm -hmm. And it makes me instinctually super angry. And I don't know where to go with that. It's almost like you literally have to shout at people and say, wake the fuck up. Wake up. Look at all these things that are keeping you down. Look at these these things that are the, literally the system that is created to hold you down. Why don't you see it? To me, there's almost no, there's no excuse anymore. There's no fucking excuse to still continue to, to live in the darkness and for people to still make the conscious decision to avoid it or to live selfishly or to act like it doesn't affect them. That is where I draw the line and that is when I want nothing to do with you as a human being, like nothing. And maybe that makes me wrong. I don't know. In Jonathan's case, he didn't grow up knowing his dad. And when he met his dad, he, he sort of was then exposed to this, the truth about, about where his family comes from. And um, to be denied that as a child, to be denied of knowing what your, what your history is, is something that doesn't leave you. Some of us, it's nearly impossible to separate our personal motives from our need to contribute. Are we motivated by the catharsis, the reflection and analysis that comes from bearing witness, writing, documenting, is healing. The urge to digest and vomit out is a natural reaction to the trauma we've experienced both personally and ancestrally. The hope is that this healing isn't only a self-indulgent act for those of us expressing, but rather that the truth conveyed could also be healing to those who receive it. We have to transcend the notion of activism, we have to transcend the terms on which we are dealing with them and we have to transcend the terms on which we define ourselves in opposition to them because those things continue to keep us divided. Those things continue to put us in camps that are prisoner to identities that they invented for us. What happened in the 20s, what happened in the 60s, 
what happened in the 90s and what's happening, what happened just six, seven years ago, those were all battles, you know, and, and not the war. And right. so I think people love to point to the civil rights movement as if it was some war that was either won or lost, depending on who you talk to. And the civil rights movement wasn't, uh, wasn't the war. I think it was a battle that the government and white supremacy won, but not the war. And so as long as um, there are human beings, this, this war will rage on in, in the pockets of the world where this injustice and white supremacy exist. And um, I, 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 don't know how, I don't know how to say this, but it's still a war. And I don't think people understand that it's, when I say war, I don't mean um, metaphorically. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's for real. We have a fundamental right to act, to publicly yell, to protest, to weep, to be enraged, to fight in any manner we see fit. But we also have a right to protect ourselves and seek alternatives to the actions I just described. The struggle to live unabashedly and uncompromisingly black or trans or shamanistic, that struggle to live apart from their constructs remains. Those that pen such poisonous social contracts remain a step ahead of us. What are we not seeing? Why aren't the methods we hold so dear giving us the results we so profoundly believe we are entitled to? Why can't we see beyond the few options we think we have? Why do we think the answer is tied to white men acting upon their acceptance of our worth? Maybe, just maybe, the answer is within us. Maybe it is resting within the space, the breath, what so many of us are too fearful to express. It is astounding what forceful and purposeful love can reveal to us. Forces and Lovers is hosted, produced, and edited by Erica and Jonathan Duella. This episode was mixed and mastered by Andy Alonzo, with music by Julian Borrego. Find out more on forcesandlovers.org and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. If a human being doesn't know these five things, they will never be conscious. Number one, Toni Morrison. You don't know. Oh, you're being specific. <laughs> I'm being very specific. I mean, I'm on some. What if you just haven't discovered her yet? You're gonna. What if somebody, some kid in fucking Siberia, he can never be conscious because he can't get a hold of a Toni Morrison book? People always so, ask me. Yeah, that. people ask you. Who do you? Who do you read? What do you do? So you're you're talking really close. You're saying like if somebody, so bone, if somebody within even our age group, yeah. if one of them said. Hey, what would you suggest for me? That's what I do. Okay. <laughs> Number one, Toni Morrison. Number two, Ingmar Bergman. Number three, this this whole list might be bias. Okay. And it probably is. 
Number three, James Baldwin. Uh, number four, Vladimir Lenin. Number five, the history of indigenous peoples. It's a great, great tool in understanding how people worshipped the earth before us and how they took care of it. All right, we have to do some laundry. And with that, we leave you. <laughs>